for the next two weeks, Lord willing, we are going to talk about Satan. Uh, Now, if this was a typical American audience, if you were made up of a group of people of regular, normal, representative Americans, this is not a regular, normal, representative American congregation, but if you were... Uh, then about two-thirds of you would immediately affirm your, exist, affirm your belief in the existence of a person called Satan, but about a third of you would not. You would come to the Bible and you would read this book and you would see in here a character that perhaps is a myth, uh, perhaps is a symbol, maybe the personification of an idea of, of evil, but not a real person. If we were in other regions of the world, if we were this morning in Latin America or in Asia or Africa, and I announced that we were going to talk about uh, Satan for three weeks, there would be overwhelming affirmation of the reality of the unseen spiritual world. Uh, Angels, demons, spirits, it all makes sense. It all fits together into their coherent understanding of the world. But that's not true in the West, because in the West, we have science. And uh, we believe that everything has some sort of natural cause, a scientific explanation. We can explain all of our problems, uh, racism, poverty, abuse, greed. We can explain all of them scientifically, uh, genetically. There's an evolutionary, psychological, sociological, economic explanation for everything. And yet, oh yet, there's this suspicion sometimes that sneaks through that uh, this dependence on what we can see and measure might not be sufficient. Andrew Dalbanco is a teacher at Columbia University, and uh, he describes himself as a secular liberal, liberal, and he wrote a book in 1996 called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. I learned about this book from Tim Keller. Listen to how Andrew Dalbanco begins his book. He says... A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, remember he wrote this in 96, as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansings and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. He quotes in his book for some time uh, from the novel The Silence of the Lambs. I have not read the book. I have not seen the movie. Uh, But there's a scene in which Officer Starling goes and visits the notorious, horrific serial killer Hannibal Lecter. She goes down into the dungeon, the prison where he is being kept, and she observes him for a little bit. And then she turns to one of her uh, uh, co-investigators, one of the, the guards there, and she says, what happened to him that made him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? Hannibal Lecter overheard her speak. It's not good to be overheard by Hannibal Lecter. But Hannibal Lecter says to her, Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. 
You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Look at me. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And Andrew Delbanco says, Modern people cannot answer the monster's question. Without, e- without evil, we have no intellectual resources to explain what is happening. It was very fashionable to believe, oh, 120 years ago, it was very fashionable to believe that the world would be a wonderful place if we would just be a little bit more educated and just a little bit more prosperous, just a little bit more technology, a little bit more understanding and education and information. If we just had a little bit more of that, the world would be a great place and we'd all eventually be able to walk up to a machine and say, Earl Grey tea hot, and there it would appear, and it would be wonderful. But then came World War I and World War II, both started by the most educated and cultural country in the entire world. We don't have the resources to explain the evil that we see. The Bible does not have that problem that we do in the Western world. In fact, the Bible tells us all along that with the natural world that God made that we can see and we can measure, God made, is also He is also the creator of the spirit world. And the Bible uses a lot of different terms to describe the spirit world. It uses the term angels, demons, spirits, cherubs, seraphim, sons of God, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions. And it says there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these creatures. And among them is a character, a person called Satan. Now, among the challenges that we have this morning as we come to discuss what the Bible teaches about the spiritual forces of evil is keeping it in its proper place. We believe that the Bible teaches not only what is true, but the Bible by its emphasis teaches us how much thought and energy we should give to certain topics. It shows it by its distribution, how much emphasis it should receive, those topics. It's really easy when we talk about evil forces, when we talk about Satan, to fall into one of two errors. One of them is to think too much about Satan, to see see him behind everything that happens. Uh, One year at the camp that I worked, I was not there at the time, I wasn't wasn't working that year, Uh, the, the staff spent some time before camp started talking about some of these things. And There was one girl in particular who was very influenced and very focused and very frightened. And one day she came out of a building, she was walking down the steps and a maintenance man came around the corner and startled her. And she said, oh, I thought you were Satan. He said, I'm just here to mop the floor. Okay? That's all I'm doing. It's got a mop, not a pitchfork. I'm not here. It's okay. We can pay too much attention to spiritual forces of evil. Or, this is the error we're more likely to fall into, we can think too little of them. Do you know that the Lord Jesus spoke of the evil one 25 times in the Gospels? Paul, when he was writing to uh, his readers, he said that we know about the devil and we are not unaware of his schemes. Really? We are not, we know about what he's after. We know about him and we know what he's trying to do. Is that, is that true of you? Uh, the Apostle Peter said to watch out because there's a roaring lion seeking to devour Paul said that if you let anger and bitterness take a hold of your life, you are giving the devil a foothold. 
wonder if you've ever thought about that after you've calmed down from one of your rages. Hmm. There's perhaps more here in the Bible than we remember there is. Here's my plan for the next few weeks. Today we're going to talk about Satan's identity. Who is he? Where did he come from? Next week we're going to talk about his work, so his identity and then his work. There's going to be some overlap this morning uh, between his identity and his work. We can't help that. But the focus is identity. Next week the focus is going to be his work. And the third week that we do this, we're going to talk about his downfall. How do we stand against him? Um, his identity, his work, his downfall. That's, that's the plan. A few months ago, I asked the elders if they thought there were any suggestions, any topics, any subjects that we should talk about together during this time that we're between book studies in our church. And uh, two of the suggestions were spiritual growth and spiritual warfare. And we're going to touch on both of those during this uh, few weeks. Today, we're going to talk about Satan's identity. And first thing we're going to talk about is his origin. Where did he come from? Here is our most basic understanding. We believe that Satan is a created being. Satan is a created being. Colossians 1.16, I wrote down the note sheet. You might want to follow along. I have a lot of verses I'm going to refer to there. Um, he's a created being. Colossians 1.16 says, For in him, that's in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, immediately we see from this first point, Satan as a created being, is that we are not dualists. Dualists are those who believe that there are two co-eternal, co-equal forces that are opposing each other as they have from all time. God, the good, co-equal, co-eternal force, and Satan, the other eternal, all-powerful force, and the two of them have been at war. That's what dualists believe. Uh, dualism is not a Christian uh, uh, teaching. Um, ancient Persian religions were dualists. Uh, St. Augustine, before he became a Christian, belonged to a dualistic religion. Uh, the teachings of Mormonism, and to a certain extent, Jehovah's Witnesses, they are dualistic. Uh, they believe, or they have believed at times, the, ch the teachings have changed, the emphasis have changed a little bit. But uh, uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses used to believe that Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers, that they are co-equal spirit brothers. But they're not. Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, through whom all things, including Satan, were created. Now, Colossians 1.16 says that in Jesus all things, invisible and invisible, were created. And Genesis 1.31 says that when God was finished with his creation, he said it was good. Everything was good. So then where did Satan come from? If he is created, but God, when he was done with creation, said everything is good, where does this evil person come from? I want to show you this morning, uh, and we believe this here. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself. Satan is a, is a fallen angel. He is, a, the Bible calls him a cherub. When did God create angels? I think that God created angels sometime before he created the world. So he made the spirit world, then he made the natural world, and Satan rebelled against God sometime after God made the natural world. Let me show you that a little bit from the text. Look at Job 38, verse 4 there. God is questioning Job. He's asking Job all kinds of questions. And he says this, 
Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? The Old Testament uses the word star to describe angels often. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted with joy. The angels were there when God called the world into existence and the response to it was, wow. Singing and shouting with joy. And Satan was among them. Not known by that name at the time, but he was there. We can understand a little bit more of how Satan was called into existence or created by looking in the book of Ezekiel. And I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, if you would please. You'll find Ezekiel almost halfway in the Bible. Well, maybe a little bit to the right of halfway. One of those great prophets that we struggle to read so much in the Hebrew Scriptures, Ezekiel 28. And I'm having you turn to Ezekiel 28 this morning, though I realize that it is a little bit controversial that we use Ezekiel 28, and I'll explain why. Ezekiel was a prophet. He was born in Jerusalem. He was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And from Babylonia, he wrote prophecies about what was going to happen to God's people, some of whom were back in Judah, he also wrote about, uh, prophecies about the nations that were surrounding Judah. And one of those nations surrounding Judah was the nation of Phoenicia, whose capital was Tyre. And in Ezekiel 28, he turns his attention to the king of Tyre. And for the first ten verses, he describes this king and what's going to happen to him. In verse 11, though, the text seems to turn a little bit. And in verse 11 and following, he, he seems to be talking about more than just a human king. Not all Bible teachers agree with this, but I think he's right, uh, that this is right. The descriptions, the, the aspirations, the words seem to go beyond what we could expect from a normal human being, even an arrogant human being. It seems like the Bible, through this king, is giving us information about Satan himself. That's what it appears to be happening here in the text. I'll read it. You see if you think that's true. But one of the things that you should know is that it's not unusual for God to speak hmm, to creatures and have Satan in view when he does. Think about the time when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be crucified. And Peter said to him, Peter said to Jesus, no, this is never going to happen to you. Remember what Jesus responded? He said, get behind me, Satan. Not because Peter at that moment was Satan, or demon-possessed or possessed by the devil, but because Peter at that time was speaking and thinking satanically. And Jesus addresses Satan through the person of Peter at that moment. He also does the same thing in Genesis 3, except he speaks to Satan through the serpent, that creature that God had made. Hmm. So it's not unusual for God to speak of Satan to Satan um, with, with a human being or a creature, a, a natural creature, in the foreground. Well, um, let's look here. Here is Satan as he was originally created to be, and he is, as the text says, the model of perfection. Look at verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. 
Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were prepared, they were prepared. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. I'll stop there for just a moment. Look what it, how it describes him, this model of perfection. It says, you are the seal of perfection. And these characteristics of him, what does the text say? First, he's described as beautiful. You are perfect in beauty. You are adorned with precious stones. And look at these. If you were an ancient Israelite reading this text, this would make you think of the high priest in his breastplate because he would have these stones in his breastplate in the most glorious costume that the high priest would wear or maybe it should make you think of heaven itself the foundation stones these these jewels described here settings and mountings were made of gold he's beautiful second the text tells us that he is wise he was wise beautiful and wise full of wisdom the text says He had skill to understand how life in God's world works. He was not just smart, he was insightful, he was clever, he was creative, he was resourceful. And then third, the text emphasizes his power, his beauty, his wisdom, his power. He was powerful. He had God-ordained authority. Verse 14 says, you were anointed as a guardian cherub. Now, this is not the chubby baby cherub with wings. Okay, That is not the biblical description of cherubs. Chubby baby cherubs with wings is actually an Islamic idea of what angels look like. It's not Christian. Um, Cherubs uh, are are, are fierce warriors. They They have some sort of specific role in guarding God's presence. God doesn't need guards he doesn't need protection but but heaven is pictured here as a royal courtroom and these are the the honor guard that is protecting the throne of god cherubs he was not only a cherub though he was an anointed cherub that's an important important word in the bible isn't it there are three people three types of people in the bible who are anointed prophets priests and kings and this angel this cherub In a moment, we're going to turn to Isaiah 14, where this creature is named. He's given the name Lucifer, which means morning star. It's the Hebrew word for the planet Venus. The planet Venus appears in the sky right before the sun. It's the celestial sign that the sun is going to rise. If you want to see the glory of the sun, you'll know it's coming because Venus, the morning star, is there. If you want to see the glory of God... (laughs) Look at Lucifer first because he's the last glory you can see, the brightest glory you can see before the glory of God appears. That's how Lucifer functioned. I, I didn't read to, verse, verse 15, does talk about his creation. You were created. I wonder if in the text you can see here begin to think about the loss that this biblical story is telling us. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about our adversary. We're talking about God's enemy who was crushed by Jesus Christ. And this is the beginning of the story. This is how it started. This is where he was. Beauty, wisdom, 
glory, intimacy with God in his very presence. Think about the privileges that this creature had, the joys and the blessings that were his, that he got to see God's glory and and have so much of it reflected in his own radiance. And, And yet he turned in rebellion against this privilege. Wonderful position that he had. You, you actually can see this tragedy that we hear, read in the Bible, lived out. It happens in miniature all the time. It reminds me a little bit of the story of, of the, the prodigal son, that story that Jesus told. What causes a young man who lives with his father to wish him dead so that he could have his inheritance? By all accounts, in the story we read, as we think about the father, his father was a good man. He was generous, he was loving, he was joyful, and he was forgiving. But his son doesn't want any of it. I don't want any of what you have. I just want your money, and I want to, I want to be free from your control. Are there echoes of that from Ezekiel 28? Kathy has a friend uh, she met at work, went through a terrible experience a long time ago. Her husband in the office found somebody. Somebody he liked better than his wife. And he, so he left his wife and he left his kids to go be with her. I'm sure that his home was not perfect, but in almost every situation where something like that happens, it's not long before that man or that woman wakes up one morning and realizes what they left behind and how foolish they were. Happens to athletes who ruin their careers with uh, drug charges or committing some other foolish crime. Life was so good, and I, I was too foolish to recognize it. It almost seems like there must be some sort of blindness going on in Lucifer. How, how could Lucifer rebel against this most glorious God, the God who had made him and so privileged him? What is he not seeing? What, what has vanished from his understanding? There is trouble to be had when you stop seeing what God in his goodness has provided for you. There is trouble there. There's always trouble. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Now, we have to talk, secondly, we've talked about his origin as a created being, created angel, second to God in glory. And uh, we're going to talk secondly here about his fall. There's some crucial pieces of the story that I, have, I confess to you I don't know. God hasn't told us everything. We're touching this morning on the very origin of evil. Everything that God made was good. In fact, it was very good. So where did evil come from? This is the first sin. This is the first act of rebellion against God. How did that happen? Well, look at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Verse 16 talks about trade. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 17, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and it reduced you to ashes on the ground. 
in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Here's the problem. Lucifer's pride, his arrogance. 1 Timothy 3 tells us that we should not appoint in our church a man who is newly converted to become an elder. Why? Because he might become arrogant and fall under the same judgment as Satan. The Bible all the way through uh, uh, associates evil, uh, uh, arrogance and pride with Satan. He's begun, begun to think that the benefits that he has are his because he deserves them. And he is beginning actually to think about the fact that he deserves more. Oh, be careful of this. Oh, be careful. This is true in almost every person who has an anger problem of some kind. They are angry because they are convinced that they deserve more. That they deserve to be treated better at work. Or they deserve more in their marriage. Or they deserve more from their kids. And they're not getting it. Or they deserve more money in this world. And they don't have it. And they're angry. Do you know what's at the heart of that? Is, is this arrogance. This pride. I am better than I am being treated. And I want more. And it makes me mad that I don't have it. We need to talk about that a little bit more here, but, but think for a minute with me about, about trade. This is interesting, I think. Uh, the, the, the Phoenicians, the king of Tyre, they were a seagoing people. They, they did a lot of trading, so that would, that would make sense that in verse 18 he talks about trade, in verse 16 he talks about trade. One commentator, I don't know, I'm not sure about this, one commentator suggests that Satan may have been wheeling and dealing with the authority that he had in heaven. That he was, he was, um, maybe this explains why when he fell, one third of the angels, the book of Revelation tells us one third of the angels fell with him. Was, was Satan making promises? Was he bartering with other angels for their support? He, Jesus tells us that Satan is the prince of demons, and, and when this wickedness was found in him, he was joined in his rebellion by a host of other angels. I don't know. I, it's interesting to think about. I, I don't know. For more help in this, we need to turn back, if you would, to the book of Isaiah chapter 14. Let's turn back to this. There's a, a more of a description even here of Satan's fall. Isaiah 14. Ezekiel is, uh, Isaiah is two books to the left from, um, what did I say? I want to say it right. Isaiah is two books to the left from Ezekiel. So turn left if you're in a, you've already gone past that. The instructions I give you are no use. So anyway, Isaiah 14 is where I want you to turn. And what we see in Isaiah 14 is something similar. In Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre and Satan are put together. Here in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon and Satan are put together. And there is rebellion here. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, there's Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Five times in this text, I will. 
Imagine how, how different that is from what the Lord Jesus, how he prayed in the garden. This just occurs to me. Not what I will, but what you will. Isn't that how he prays? It's how different that is from these words. I will. It appears from this text here that he wants to take God's place. He wants to rule over the angels. That is, he wants to have a throne above the stars of God. He wants to sit enthroned on the Mount of the Assembly. Well, the Mount of Assembly is Jerusalem. Who's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem? The Lord Jesus Christ. Satan wants that throne for himself. I will make myself like the Most High. This is Satan's sin here. His arrogance, his pride is manifesting itself here now in self-determination. Independence from God. I will define myself. I will create myself. I will rule myself. I will determine for myself what is best for me. Now this, this self-determination, this self-identification is most evident right now in our culture, in our sexual confusion. People are demanding the right to self-identify their own gender. They can recreate themselves however they want with surgery or clothing or hormones. That form of self-determination may be preeminent in our culture at this point in time, but this de-godding of God, that's how D.A. Carson describes this, this de-godding of God is not new. Even in the Garden of Eden, Eve was tempted. I want to determine for myself what is good, what is good to eat. I will rule my own life. If you take a moment and just, just for a moment, think this morning about the issue in your life, in your heart, that is most unsettling to you, the thing that's troubling you the most this morning, I bet you'll find at its core that same self-determination. You're angry or you're sad or you're bothered or you're confused because you, there it is at the heart, I want to have my way. I want to get what I want. That sense starts in a child, right, very early on, from the first time that they say, mine. I want it. Where did this inclination in Lucifer come from? It comes naturally to me. I'm really good at it. I've been sinning like that for a long time. Where did it come, though, from in Lucifer? And here we're asking that great question, where does this evil come from? Because there was no evil before this. Where did this blindness come from that he wanted more, this inability to see and receive and appreciate God's great glory? Now, a very common answer to this question is free will. God made Lucifer with free will, and Lucifer freely chose what he wanted to do. But that just backs up the question a little bit further here. It doesn't really answer where evil came from. Because um, uh, the next question that you ask is, why did God make Lucifer with the free will to make that decision? It doesn't really help. The Bible tells us that Lucifer made choices for which he is morally responsible. Every person in this room makes choices for which you are morally responsible. But why, why, Lucifer, seeing God's glory, did you turn away from it? 
Why did you make that choice when, when, when you saw God in all of his wonder and you were there to, to be with him? Why did you turn from that? And why did you turn from the feast of God to eat the scraps that you thought you could make? Why did you do that? We sing that uh, old hymn, How Sweet and Awesome Is This Place. I don't know if you know this, but the original wording of that hymn is how sweet and awful is the place. Awful not in the sense of terrible, but awful in the sense of wonderful. It's full of awe. <laughs> we don't use the word awful that way anymore. How sweet and awesome is this place with Christ within the doors where everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Lord, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands, thousands make the wretched choice and they'd rather starve than come? Lucifer, why would you rather starve than sit at God's table? How could you be that, that foolish? I don't know why Satan made that wretched choice. There's a few things that come to mind, but I don't know all the answers. I, I don't have them I'm going to speculate a little bit. We hold some truths in tension. First of all, you should understand, sin is never rational. Sin is never rational. We're looking for the reason why. We're looking for the good reason why. But sin is never rational. People don't rebel against God because they're brilliant. Sin is always an irrational choice. So when we're looking for a reasonable reason, when we say to Satan, why, there is no reasonable reason. Sin is always irrational. Secondly, we understand that the Bible tells us that God works out His will in everything. This is part of God's good plan for evil to come. Same time, God is not the author of evil. He's not responsible for it. I can't explain that fully, but the Bible affirms it. Now, I want to I suggest something to you that makes sense to me Maybe this describes some of the mechanics of it. You can think about this. Two, two passages that I want to direct your attention to in Isaiah, and they're both written down, I think, in that note sheet that you have. The first one is Isaiah 63:17. Look what it says. Before I tell you that it's there, I should actually look at the sheet and affirm that it is. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Good. Isaiah 63:17. Look at the Israelites saying to God, "Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways?" Oh, that's an interesting phrase. "Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance." God has made them somehow wander from his ways. How did he do it? The prophet uses this word return. There's an absence. God's missing somehow. Hmm. Now look at Isaiah 64, 7. This is just, it's the next chapter, but it's a few verses later. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, still speaking to God, for you, God, have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. God's missing. He's hidden somehow, and the result is that the people have sinned. I'm not sure this is sufficient to describe this. I wonder, was there some way in which God's glory was obscured from Lucifer, in which God uh, covered his glory from Lucifer, and Lucifer not seeing as he should have, he turned himself, he turned to himself in wonder and awe. Is that the way by which evil entered the world, the universe? 
Maybe. If this is so, if this is so, then I understand a little bit more fully why this inclination to rebel still abides in me, why it pulls on me, because the Apostle Paul said, we see God's glory, but we see it dimly. We see it in the gospel, but we see it dimly, like as in a, a mirror, a, 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 a mirror, a glass darkly. We, we see God's glory dimly. Someday, 1 John tells us, someday we're going to see Jesus in his glory revealed and I'm going to be like him. We're going to be be perfect like the Lord Jesus because we see him fully. Was Was God's glory hidden from Lucifer and evil was born in his heart at that moment? I understand that because we see darkly God's glory and and sin just comes to us. Hmm. Well, we have one more issue that we're going to talk about this morning. I want to talk to you about Satan's names. Satan's names. There are 40 different titles given to Satan in the Bible. Number one. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go over all 40 of them. Not going to do that. Um, some of the most important names and titles of Satan are actually pulled together in Revelation 12.9. How do we know that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is describing one person? Look at the names that are brought together in Revelation 12.9. That, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Of the 40 different names, I want to mention just a few of them in groups, groups that seem to go together that that seem most central to, to describing who this person is. First, he is called the serpent or the dragon. And the emphasis here in these two words is that he is vicious and he is cruel. The serpent was more crafty than any of the other creatures that the Lord God had made. He's vicious, he's cruel, he's cunning. I know there's such a thing as Puff the Magic Dragon and he's furry and he's fuzzy and he's really cute and cuddly. And I know that you can learn how to train your dragon if you live with the Vikings in ancient Scandinavia. But for most of history, dragons have been pictured as mythical and vicious creatures. They are uh, enemies. Now, that leads us to the second set of names here. Serpent, dragon, he's vicious Satan, the devil, and the accuser of the brethren. Here's his chief weapon. Uh, Satan means adversary, just the Hebrew word for adversary. The devil means accuser or slanderer. His chief weapon as our adversary, the way he manifests himself as our adversary, is accusation. He brings charges before us, against us before God. He says to God, that person is guilty of sin. See that guy down who lives in Millersville? He's a pastor. He is guilty of sin. I'm talking about Steve Cornell, by the way. So, no, that's, that's not true. He's a fine man. He's a fine man. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. Uh, you see that, that guy? He is, he is guilty. And Satan doesn't just accuse us us. Uh, before God, he accuses us to ourselves. Don't be surprised at the thought that you might have someday. This thought. Every person in this room has had this thought. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't feel that way. You wouldn't think that way. 
You wouldn't do that if you were a real Christian because real Christians don't do that sort of thing. Our adversary has no interest in you having any sort of assurance that you actually can be forgiven by God. He has no interest in that at all. We're going to talk about this more next week. This isn't easy to think about. Maybe, maybe that accusing voice is, is true and you're not a believer. But this is one of Satan's most oft-used tricks. We're going to talk about it more next week. He's the accuser. And his accusations, follow this is interesting, his accusations can move you from confidence to self-absorption. Self-absorption that itself is satanic because Satan is absorbed with himself. This title, devil accuser, is why Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that on the cross, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities. It says it right there. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He triumphed over them. How did, how did he do that? How did he disarm Satan? He disarmed Satan by paying, for the penalty, paying the penalty for the sins that we owe. So that when Satan accuses us and says, Hey, Divinity, you're a rotten sinner. I can say to him, Yes, I know that, but Jesus paid for all of my sins on the cross. You're absolutely right about me, Satan. You have been right about me from the beginning. I am a rotten sinner, but Jesus is the Savior who paid the penalty for my sins. He disarms Satan by paying the penalty for our sin. By removing them, uh, he, he defangs Satan on the cross. Now third here, the text tells us that he is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. Some of you have been around long enough. Remember, well, remember the day that the phrase, the prince of the power of the air, was meant to describe how Satan ruled radio. So you shouldn't listen to radio because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That may be true of some stations, I think. But that's not the emphasis here. Not the emphasis here. Um, this speaks to his authority. So if serpent and dragon talks about the fact that he's vicious, and the devil and the accuser of the brother talks about what he does, his accusations. This, these phrases together talk about his authority. He is, in, in God's original creation, human beings were meant to rule over the world as God's co-regent, but Satan has usurped our authority, and he's allowed to possess that authority. The Bible tells us that human beings are born into the kingdom of darkness in his dominion, and by faith we are rescued from that kingdom and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. Kingdom of light. Now, this last set of titles here. He's the evil one. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. Again, th- these are his means. He lies. He tempts. He will get you coming and going. He leads you into sin. And when you sin, he then tells you that you can't possibly be a Christian if you do. Both ways, he gets you coming and going. We'll talk about that more again next week. You'll have to forgive me if. I, I was born in the 70s and I, I grew up with Star Wars, so forgive me if this illustration is too geek for you. Okay. Um, at the end of Return of the Jedi, Luke Skywalker, <laughs> you, some of you are like, bring it on, okay? Uh, uh, Luke Skywalker uh, is, is presented before uh, uh, Emperor Palpatine, the Sith Lord, the embodiment of evil in the universe. And, and Luke Skywalker, the, the Jedi Knight, has, is, is tested. Is he going to join the dark side with Emperor Palpatine or not? 
And when he refuses, Emperor Palpatine uh, uses his Sith power to shoot, I don't know, I don't have a better description, lightning bolts from his hand at Luke Skywalker. And it's very painful and it's very debilitating. Uh, Luke Skywalker is a Jedi Knight. He's been trained. He has trained with Obi-Wan Kenobi and with Yoda, the great master Yoda. And, and as you watch this scene in this movie, you should think to yourself, you should remember, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda have both seen uh, Emperor Palpatine unleash the lightning from his hand. They, they have both seen him do this. They have seen him do this to people. Shoot him like this. And the question that you should have in your mind when you see that scene is, why did neither of them warn Luke Skywalker about this ability? Why didn't Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda sit down with Luke Skywalker and say to him, hey, you know, just in case you're ever with Emperor Palpatine, you should beware. Look out for the hands when he goes like this. It's a bad sign. Beware. It really hurts. Like, why didn't they ever tell him about that? We have been warned in the pages of the Bible over and over and over again repeatedly and with enough specificity. We have everything in the Bible we need to know about our enemy. We've not been warned so that we can be paralyzed with fear, but so that we can be sober. We're going to think about what that means and what that looks like in the weeks to come. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the truthfulness that we find in your word that you warn us. Lord, we come, we, don't, we have questions, things that we don't understand. We don't understand completely why it's for your glory that there would be this vicious, evil person, powerful, who is your enemy and you have allowed him so much authority. We, we, don't, we don't understand all those things. And yet we know that you are the great victor through Jesus Christ who is our Lord. Father, I pray that as we uh, think together about Satan that you would help us, that you would protect us. We would not take this lightly because we know that he is the father of lies and the liar who who does not want to be known and does not want to be unmasked. So we pray for your protection and we pray for insight that you would give us, that you would help us to understand and that it would be true of us, like the Apostle Paul said, we are not unaware of his schemes. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we pray that you would enable us to embrace it, own it, and delight in it. Do these things for us. We are your children. You are our good Father, and we prevail upon you to help us, to hear us, and to help us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.